It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. From Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Welcome to Epigraphs. I'm Ted. And I'm Maria. So today we're going to, I think, I think this is going to be a little bit more like a debate um, because I have an idea that you uh, have some pushback on and hopefully we'll come to a... We always do. Well, sure. (laughs) Well, yeah, okay. (laughs) Maybe it's less of a, let's collectively look at this book. It's more like, I I think something and you you disagree at least on some level and, and... any rate, and hopefully it'll be a lot richer. My, my understanding of it will be richer and uh, of a higher resolution by the end of this. So I'll lay out my argument and uh, we'll go from there. So this is related to sort of an, our, my anthropology, the way that I think about being people. And I think a, a good way to start to get at this is thinking about the changes in the way that um, people structure the lives in the last hundred years, particularly related to things like um, marriage and family building. And it's no surprise that, or should be no surprise to anyone, that in, at least in, in the West, marriages have declined precipitously, uh, particularly after World War II. Um, divorce rates are really high, and there's not anything like the say, staying power of the nuclear family and that the there was before that. And I think a major, uh, my, my contention is that a major contributing factor to that is, let's say, a failure to ins- teach children that the skills and the goals necessary to result in people living those kinds of lives. So basically that... It is not a, an instinctive quality of people to pursue that kind of life, but it's something that uh, must be instructed. It must be taught, and there's also skills involved in being able to do that that are also are not instinctive. So that that's my starting place. Is there, is there any? And, and so that and and that has to do with. I'll just I'll go ahead and bring this in right now. There's a, a thinker from the 20th century called Eugene Rosenstock Hesse, which I read many years ago. And a particular thing that stuck in my head from his writing is when he talks about the ways that we conceive of ourselves as an I versus a thou. He makes this, what I thought, very interesting contention that we first come to know ourselves as a thou. So that, or at least let's say that's the natural human, the normal human pattern where you're being told by your parent or your sibling you are so-and-so, you are my son, you are my sister, whatever, do this, do that, come here, let me give you a kiss, here's your, your dinner. And so our pronoun, like when we, think of our, when we think of ourselves, it's first through a second person pronoun and not a first person pronoun. And so I see that as the first point is connecting more broadly, which is this, the, let's say the profundity to which we receive things through other people rather than, than being self-determined or um, let's say instinctive. So what, what do you think about that? What do you, what, where, where, what, what's the nuance that's missing or, or is it fundamentally wrong? <laughs> well, that is a, I would say it's a more moderate view than you laid out to me earlier in the kitchen. <laughs> oh, but, okay. well, <laughs> um, but I think that it, oversimplifies the way in which we learn things as if we can only learn things from other people. And many times the easiest way to learn things from other people is from other people. But the, the things that you're describing, you know, we agree. I'm guessing most of the people who end up listening to this podcast will agree that people flourish in the kinds of, relationships that you're talking about that are on the decline, Mm -hmm. like stable families. Mm -hmm. And when we don't have those kinds of relationships, then people don't flourish. Yes. And your parents can teach you that that's the kind of thing you should be aiming for and teach you how to get there. But if they don't, then what you run up against is the fundamental need of human civilization to have those kinds of things in place. And you have to, you end up having to relearn that. 
Yeah, and, and I, I've seen that in my, well, you say a civilizational need, and I definitely agree with that. Even on, a, I think there's a, a personal need too, if you get halfway there, I mean, you can see that you want to get there and you might not know how. And so, I, well, I say civilizational because particularly things like marriage, civilization requires stable marriages, but not everyone has to be married. Right. Yes, absolutely. I agree with that. There's actually a, there's actually a fascinating uh, piece that I listened to last time, year around Easter talking about sort of to presenting, presenting mar- stable marriage as being the, is being the, let's say the, the most basic binding force of society in opposed to Girard's idea of it being sacrifice, which is interesting. Hmm. And then they talk about the passion story as being both a sacrifice and having deep parallels to a marriage which is very interesting. Um, we could talk about that another time. But I, I agree. And and it might be interesting to think about maybe why that is so important on a on a societal and a, on a civilization level. But uh, sorry, I, was, I was going to say that, my, you know, I, I, I sort of see people halfway there where they are the children of broken families of divorced parents. And they're but they, they they're still aiming at that sort of stable family life. Mm-hmm. But they don't have this, they don't really know how. And so that one's interesting to me because they have the goal in mind. They have the desire to do it, but they weren't like taught like the relational skills. They didn't see those relational skills. And I, and I, and I want to say I'm using taught here in a very broad sense, right? Not your parents sat you down and said, here's our, you know, six, six lesson course on how to argue with each other. Right. Cause you, <laughs> Well, and, and, you know, it's, it's interesting. So uh, you and I talked about that, um, that academy, the acting academy that I'd come across and I was reading the description of it. And I was like, we put all these kids together and like, it's very loose and unstructured. And like, there's a lot of like self-teaching and negotiation between the two students. And, and I was like, well, hold on this. I mean, you said the exact same thing. Oh, this sounds like a big family. Mm-hmm. And the degree to which you're in, when you're in a big family, you have lots of siblings, you are those those negotiations, relational negotiation skills are something that, unless your family's falling apart, are something that you just, they, they come out. Do you, do you think that we need a, do you think there should be a term for a different term for that versus sort of the more like didactic teaching, right? Cause it's one thing for your parents to teach you mathematics or to learn, you know, arithmetic or to learn to read. It's another thing to learn from your siblings or your parents. Um, you know, when someone takes something that you want, how do I respond? And that might not be something that you're ever, you, you know, no one like writes out and rarely do you have something like written out as an algorithm of like, this is how you go through the various steps of that process. Do you, do you think those are different? I mean, I also know you've done a lot, have, have more knowledge, like the theory of education and stuff. Would you consider those to be different kinds of teaching? They're different kinds of teaching. They're not necessarily different kinds of learning. Okay. Because okay. when you learn something like math, you don't actually learn it because somebody told it to you. They told you how to do it, and then you did it, and that's how you learned it. You didn't learn it by, like, you have to actually, oh, great. Yeah, even yeah, if it's just yeah. a fact that you're learning, you have to actually rethink that fact in your own mind. Yeah, okay, that, I, I mean, I love, well, right, so now we're doing this, we're having this conversation, right? And I, one of the main reasons I wanted to do it was because of how much I learned from doing the conversation, right? Mm-hmm. So I have these ideas spinning around in my head when I'm working or, or reading or listening to a podcast or something. And then I come to you and I realize how I can't do that idea in a conversation. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, hold on. That sounded really great. But do I really know it? No, I don't. Let's, let's work through it. So you would say that, would you, so you, can, can I make it even more stark and say that fundamentally all learning is doing? Yeah. If we're talking about a really fundamental level, then I would agree with that. That is... That's really interesting. Okay, do you think it's that, not my idea? No, I believe uh, that. it came from. Well, I don't know where he got it. I read <laughs> it in Milton Gregory. He wrote the Seven Laws of Teaching. Okay, classical school classic. Great. That's really that is really interesting. Well, so okay, so maybe uh, that feels like it's gonna probably help, maybe start to 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 work at this a little bit more. So so so, so what you're talking about gives people an early 
controlled, safe, to use a, a trigger word, <laughs> environment in which to do those things. And right. if they miss that early environment, then they end up having to, well, they either don't learn them or they learn them by doing in harder circumstances. Right, because that, maybe that would be one of the biggest things that I would say is that about this sort of set of things to learn is that they are all deeply consequential later on in life. Mm -hmm. Like the way that you learn them have profound consequences on you. If you take somebody else's money later. Yes. It has far more, has far greater consequences than if you took a coin out of your sister's piggy bank. Yes. When you were three. So, so it's interesting. And I, you know, I don't want to, I mean, my, when I, I think that this is right. Like, I think that that stuff is deeply learned from the people around you, most especially at an early age. Doesn't Chesterton say something like, by the time a child goes to school at the age of four, he's already learned everything important there is to learn? <laughs> I don't know. I it's, haven't heard that before. It's something like that. And, you know, and I've, you know, I've also heard, I think Jordan Peterson talks about there's somewhere at the age of two and then again at the age of four, there's some like this massive socialization change where children stop basically being concerned only with themselves mm-hmm. and like, you're, they're basically asking, acting like sociopaths until they're two, and then yeah. they're, they learn how to be a person around other people, which that whole phrase is really interesting. Um, but I, the thing that I don't want to get – because I, I hear in myself immediately this sort of social construct, like everything is – you know, it's, it's all – It's all just, nurture and no nature. It's all nurture and no nature, and I know that that's not right. I want – do you – for like at least maybe at least some I don't want to get into that too much right now but like for a high level maybe we'll have to but for a high level look at that do you think it's something like what C.S. Lewis is talking about in the abolition of man where he's discussing general morality so for instance people have these general unless you're like really broken there's a general understanding of like killing is bad in the wrong circumstances and then there could be all sorts of learning murder and, is bad murder is bad and it's like what Everybody kind of killing is murder that. yeah yeah so do you, do you think that that, do you think that that might work? Relationships, well, how can I, reciprocity is good, but who do you show reciprocity to and under what circumstances and how much? Like, do, do you think it's that kind of learning that, that is, that's going on there in that sort of, in that sort of like a cultural, acculturation, socialization with children? You're saying, so you have an innate knowledge that reciprocity is good and then what you learn is... Like how that's the, embedded, like the what the the circumstances, how you, or is, or is it even, is it even more just like we have some innate knowledge of that things are good and we don't know, but we don't know, say more, there are certain things that are moral and we are learning how to do it. Do you think it's a, yes, these things are good. We're learning how to do it or, or do we like, or are we even just being taught at the most basic level, you know, don't hit people like hurting other people is a, is unnecessarily is a bad thing. I mean, again, you say I, <laughs> I don't unnecessarily. Know, it's, 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 and hard, I, <laughs> it's hard to say because because it is. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is that it it's so dependent on development. Like you don't expect a two year old to recognize that hitting somebody else is intrinsically bad. Right. And so people tell them that. Yes. And yeah. at that level, basically everybody gets told that. So. I don't know what happens if you get a 12-year-old who's never been told that. If the 12-year-old ought to instinctively learn that, it's almost impossible to know because in order to hit somebody, you had to be around people. Uh, and so, other people yeah. are going to tell you. They're going to tell you right away. That. Yeah. 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 Well, and it's so interesting, too. And it's like, and you're like, well, I'd be curious to know. And I'm like, but I don't. I, you I don't, don't want to find out. I don't want to find out. Yeah. I mean, frankly, people are dangerous. Like, which yeah. is interesting. There's this sense of, I love that. In in subsequent readings, I've really loved that line when um, in the Two Towers, when spoiler alert, Gandalf comes back, and and Gimli says, um, "What does he say? He says, uh, someone told us you were, oh, you told, but you told us that Treebeard is dangerous, Fanghorn is dangerous, and Gandalf says, of course he's dangerous, right? I am dangerous. Aragorn is dangerous. You you yourself are dangerous, Gimli. You're you're beset mm-hmm. by dangers, and there's this. So there's this sense in which, like, when you're, <laughs> I mean, and this is actually really getting to a lot of the heart of what I want to get at when we're raising, when you're, whether it's, you know, my children as my biological children or they're your nieces and nephews, right. Mm -hmm. Or, or it's, you know, your grandchildren, all these people who are participating in the rearing of children, there's this sort of, there's a peril in it. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I think that's what I'm trying to get at is the sense that like, well, now this, this sounds very, yeah, you can't, 
if you just take someone and say, yeah, everything's going to turn out fine. Like you're a person, all of this is innate. You can end up with something that's profound, really, really dangerous. Like the kinds of people that come out of those circumstances are really dangerous. So what I, what I find really compelling about that idea, which is a funny thing to find compelling, is that I think it paints the common activities of human life as not being the sort of uh, thing that's just necessarily going to turn out in one direction. This is what I was trying to get at earlier when we were talking before we started recording. Um, that I'm, I'm trying to get at a way of looking at the basic activities of human life as something other than having a guaranteed outcome. That's what I'm trying to say. That there's not a guaranteed outcome in the way that people are going to turn out, which means that, um, say, the, 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 the things that we do as the sort of basic human things are actually properly viewed as a, let's say, a perilous adventure rather than this, like, stick in the mud, we already know how this is going to happen, you flip a coin, it's either heads or tails, no one's, like, holding their breath. Here's where I would push back against that. Okay. Or maybe exaggerate it. I don't know. <laughs> you say perilous adventure. I say so perilous that if you get them wrong, then that line of human existence basically uh, disappears. Yes. Within a couple generations. Yes. Yeah, so one of the yeah. things you said earlier was that people talk about governments rising and falling and ideas rising and falling and people just basically being people. And so, you know, they you can count just on being on. there. Yeah. Yeah. But if you think about the, the things that have disappeared the fastest, they tend to be the ones that are counter to people being people. So like the oh, communist yeah. government, I mean, that's the and, first thing I thought of and yes. utopian communities that pretend that humans don't need this kind of basic family structure. They don't last. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, like the utopian thing is basic family structure because people are good. On the communist side, it's basic family structure because the state can replace it. They're yeah. sort of like opposite ends of that. that. I mean, that's actually really interesting that you brought that up. I've been pondering recently, you know, that so you have the you have the Soviet government that for what's 50 years, 60 years, they're just like grinding, grinding down on the people under them. And the, and this is, I was thinking about this because of Dostoevsky. And so a major, a major part of it is the Russian Orthodox church in the brothers Karamazov, right? There's the, mm -hmm. there's the monastery and there's the monks and the priests mm -hmm. and Russian society there, according to what, what I'm reading about rural Russian society in Dostoevsky seems like just unbelievably different from modern Russian society. And so it's not like the Soviet union didn't leave an indelible mark on, mm -hmm. on Russia. On the other hand, there was the Russian Orthodox Church and the Soviet Union. And now the Soviet Union's gone and the Russian Orthodox Church is still there. Mm -hmm. And I find that fascinating. You know, I also read this book a few months ago called A Canticle for Leibowitz. And it's a science fiction book about this Catholic monastery 600 years and then on after a nuclear holocaust. And his idea is like the things that make it through, you know, a, a total nuclear war is like <laughs> the Roman Catholic Church. And it sounds funny, but then you think, well, why Why would it be that and, like, villages that make it through the Holocaust when nothing else does? This is related to something that I have thought about when reading uh, fiction that was actually written during World War One and World War Two in particular, and contrasting it with things like... Uh, you know, I love Victorian novels. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but there's a real there's a real difference in focus, particularly when it comes to institutions and families. And in the Vic the Victorian period, I'm particularly thinking of of Anthony Trollope. He's got these yeah. institutions. Yeah. They're very much there. There's the Church of England, there's Parliament, there're all these, you know, they are players in his world, but it's not really what he's so focused on, and there's no sense of crisis in so far as the institutions are concerned. You know, it's all sort of focused on the events of these people's lives. Mm -hmm. 
when you read what people were writing, and these are very like, domestic novels from World War One through World War Two, there's a much stronger embrace of the institutions because that's what needs to come through. That's what's going to carry them through Interesting. The, the huge crises. Interesting. Do you th- so? Okay. So, do you think that's in relation to sort of the the stuff we were talking about earlier, and then what I, the comments I made about the Soviet Union and a canticle for Leibowitz, which obviously is fictional, but um, plausibly fictional, I'll put it that way in my mind. Do you do you do you see that as like the right? Do you see that as the right focus to have? And and when you say institutions, I'm I, I'm understanding you to say institutions say above the level of the institution of a household. Right. And, okay. But institutions pretty broadly. So it might yeah. be a community, like a village. A village or a um, university. Or, or, yeah, a university, even a government. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, in the world wars, that was, I think that's what felt like it was at stake, was like yeah. nations. Yeah. Um, and so those broader identities become, I think, extra important when they're threatened especially by something that is on that same kind of scale when it's no yeah. longer you can't view world war ii as a, a personal crisis that's so so do you think that there is a do you think there's a direct link a causal link from that to what i started out hypothesizing which is the let's say the failure to acknowledge that level of humanization in the at the family level in the post-war period because okay because there's two ways that i could see that mm-hmm. happening one way is that you've gone through what you're talking about where like everyone's kind of realized hey we've got to fight for the nation otherwise we're all going to be gone and so you come to put your trust in the institutions and and are thinking about it on that level the other one is i could also look at the post-war pro- i mean the way that because the way that i've typically looked at it is post-war prosperity you were at the you know sort of this flowering of industrialism in the west in you know say from the 1950s to the 1980s and there's this unprecedented increase in prosperity and stability and yes you got the cold war but like you know the hippie and then you have the hippie movement and all of that stuff there's i've always thought it of wow things feel so good there's just this assumption that we can just let things keep running that's kind of been my assumption and so it's like eh well right like Things are great. You know, the kids are in school. Like, they'll figure it out. Like, we figured it out. They'll figure it out. It'll be fine. There'll always be food on the table and, you know, a a nice neighborhood to grow up in. Mm -hmm. That's the way that I've looked at it. What you're saying is an interesting, is an interesting either challenge or nuance or balance to it, which is saying maybe the events of the first half of the 20th century were in some ways so jarring that they kind of pulled people's gaze upward to to this institutional Mm -hmm. level to the degree that they became blind to the need for that same level of, let's say, her, of heroic action of or of intentional duty at the much lower, smaller scale of of the family, of those sort of personal relationships. What do you think about what do you think about that? I haven't thought about haven't thought about that for sure. Um I, you know, if you're, it's just hard to know what kind of scale to think of these things on because the fifties were, if anything, like even more rigid when it came to things like, you know, being part of community and very stringent gender roles for a lot of families, um, you know, to the extent that I think people often fall into the trap now of thinking that complementarianism necessarily looks like a 1950s housewife and her husband who's gone all day. All day to the office. Yeah, Um, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So I don't know if you can look at the 1950s and say, well, that was just an aftermath of, of people embracing these sources of stability or say, that was a further development and then and then something changed again in the 60s. Yeah. I mean, I was using these decades very somewhat loosely. loosely. Yeah. Well, yeah, there has been a I do keep coming I I I have things that keep going back to the 60s, which is really interesting. I kind of 
it was just like a time in my history that I didn't really like put much weight on and I just, yeah a lot happened in that decade in our country which is I mean that's a whole nother that's there's a lot to it there but yeah I it is it's it's hard to do forensics for me because I, I kind of think about well why do why do people let's say neglect neglect the that that work because it really is work um whether it's joyful or not like it's a real work to do those things why do people neglect that now what things uh the the socialization of children let's say stable families socialization of children it doesn't have to just be in the nuclear family but okay. in the family uh-huh. but the familial socialization of children and and that is in in sort of um leave people to develop as they as they choose and it i'm just really it it's it's a weird thing because when i start thinking about it i can immediately think of about five very plausible explanations for for that and they're not connected really and so it's strange to me that they all it there's like all, i can think of all of these things at the same time in history that all seem to converge on it and well i mean for one thing that makes me think that maybe i don't understand it on the other hand it makes me think maybe it's actually extraordinarily important if you have all these converging lines but because i can think of things like well you know the rise of public school and the idea that the government is going to do that and sort of the rise of expertism right so who who should raise my children while well, the experts should you know i should you know someone who who knows how to teach should teach my children that there's that there's that kind of thing there's that i find also very plausible the sort of stability and abundance that our society was experiencing for the first time that leads you can lead you to th- for one for one thing it can lead you to think well things are going to just turn out fine and our kids are going to turn out fine and on the other hand it can I think just lead you to a place of not, you know, that not being forced on you. I mean, because the reality is, is that, you know, when things are hard, you end up being thrown into tighter relationships with the people around you or they disintegrate. And so when things are really easy, it's a lot easier to have, when things are easy and safe, it's a lot easier to have loose, loose ties with the people around you rather than close ties. Um, So that's another one. Um, You know, the... Then you have sort of, I can also see this, the, the rise of the individualized self where people actually think I, and, and I, this is the one that I see them, I think most strongly, most recently, this idea that it's actually some sort of, um, you're wronging your child by doing that to them. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I don't know if you have any insight into how early that was coming about. I mean, it feels like, Mm-mm. you know, the sort of absurdist flowering of that is I'm not going to tell my child that he's a boy. Right, mm-hmm. like he needs to determine that for himself. I'm like, if you can't tell your child that he's a boy, you probably don't feel like you should quash his desire to, you know, do X, Y, or Z for some, you know, higher purpose of having him be an a let's say a, a socialized child. It's like, so I don't. What do you What do you think about the fact that it that I can you know I can sit here and and come up with to me at least you know four was that four plausible ex plausible causes for that pattern, um, and they don't. None of them seem to be like, I don't see any immediate like root, common root to all of them. Well, I think history is complicated. Agreed. (laughs) People are complicated. Also agreed. (laughs) And culture is complicated. I think that any time, it's just me pontificating. Go for it. Anytime that you have something that destabilizes to that extent, mm-hmm. you do have to look for a source of stability somewhere else. And that's why people embrace their institutions in crises, because they need stability from somewhere. Oh, and so, yeah. Okay. So if you, if you have a stable society in some ways, well, in lots of ways, then that allows you to sort of destabilize some of them without everything immediately falling apart. Yes. Yeah. And so, oh, okay. I've and got, and then it lets you, it lets you can, depending on what it is, that's going to have a greater or a lesser effect. And so what I think is things like we see this with marriage in particular, that we have such an extraordinarily long history of stable marriage in the West that we have been able to, cut out the foundations of it Mm -hmm. Mm 
And then the institution itself has gradually eroded. And cut flower culture, which is such a great phrase. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't heard it before, but yes. And so, so as that, but, but the stability of the original foundation let the institution itself get so well built up and stable that you can, you can continue on. You've got that momentum built up yeah. to last for however long. Yeah. Before you start to really see the effects of that, which yeah, is a two-edged yeah. sword. It means there's time to recover, yes. but it also means that you don't necessarily see the bad consequences right, you don't, it, it's if really, you're not really taking the long view. It's really damaging if you'd have a a, a short-term consequentialist view of those mm-hmm. things. So the, I, there was a maybe two years ago. There's a I listened to a podcast with Jordan Peterson and this guy who was like a he was a psychologist and he worked in like I think he worked in a prison and a hospital in London, and so. He basically, he's seeing like London street people, like really troubled London street people. That's who he was working with. And the conversation ended up mostly being about um, the institution of marriage and, and serial monogamy, adultery, whatever you want to call it. And the line that they were tracing was essentially that the people who started presenting this idea of you can have these non-married serial monogamous relationships, serially monogamous relationships were all the people who were presenting that as an option coming out of a society co- almost you know dominated by marriage in regards to the union between a man and a woman, that they were all the children of rich, very well-educated, mm-hmm. stable people. And so you can go off and do that and like, you know, have a partner, big quotes, for two years and then go off to someone else and someone else and especially when you're young and when you have a stable family behind you and around you, that yeah. works. He said, but you then, have that existing source of stability that lets you incorporate chaos. Yes. Or destabilize. Exactly. Another part of your life without immediately seeing disaster. But then when you take that idea and you bring it down to the people who are living very marginal lives down at the bottom of society. Mm-hmm. then the result is just hellish and you have domestic violence, tons of like really unhealthy single parent households, you know, the men, you know, abusive relationships and on and on and on and on. And it's really terrible because they don't have that, that stable. Fa- and especially once you've gone through three generations of that, it's like, okay, mm-hmm. this isn't, this really isn't good. And, and so I mean, that's, that's part of what's so interesting to me about all this is that now where we are in this place where, you know, there there are fewer and fewer people who have come out of that sort of familial stability. And there is at least, well, right. So what you were saying, basically, when you first start out, it's like, hey, man, this is going pretty well. This seems to be working out. But the further you get down the road, those cracks start showing up. And like, mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> those cracks are everywhere now, whether or not we're willing to see that that's the cause. And again, so like a lot of a lot of my peers, like in college when they're getting married, so many of them are out of divorced households, mm-hmm. and they're like that didn't work out, you know, for various reasons. They they recognize, hey, that wasn't the way. That's not the way I want to conduct my life. And so there's a sort of like <laughs> looking sideways, right? Looking back and looking sideways and saying, how can we, you know, we're a little on the late side, but how can we how can we pick this up? And so it's really interesting to me to see how much of that is like innate and how much of that you could just like as a, as a couple say, hey, we've got this goal. We've decided this is the goal. Let's try to do this. Mm-hmm. And how much of it has to be looking sideways and saying, who are the people that still remember how to do this? Mm-hmm. Um, who are the people that are living that out? And it's going to be some of both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I just it it it's I guess I, I, I keep coming back to this. The the sort of. um, Yeah, the 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 fact that this stuff isn't a given like it's it's this division of a stable looking at a stable society like a stable a society to the degree that it's stable and healthy is not one because of something like stagnation or unoriginality or even really rigidity in the proper sense i think overly rigid societies also fall apart you know and and you're you're (laughs) that may be what happened from the 50s to the 60s absolutely absolutely and so what is it that gives life to a society is actually this continual process of 
working these things out over and over and over on these individual levels for this child, for this couple. And, and so, because... Well, that's one of the things that's so valuable about the family as well. You said working things out over and over and over. Uh, is that the family is basically, it's our longest term relationship. Yes. Often. Right. Now, friendship can be, but that's certainly the exception rather than the rule. And so if you're in a stable family, it provides that time that you need besides all the other advantages. Yeah. Well, and then you have, you, you also have J- Chesterton's interesting point about family, which is that when you, with your friend, you choose your friends. And so you can choose people who are just like you, but like your family is given to you. Well, you choose your spouse. You choose your spouse. These days. With the except, right. <laughs> anyway, that's another conversation. <laughs> um, but that when, you, when you're thinking about your parents, your siblings, your children, right, those, are, those are just, here they are, yes, genetic similarities, but like you can't, you really don't, you can't pick them. And so the degree of the, 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 necess, the necessity for learning how to negotiate those things, it's like if you can figure that out, you can definitely figure out friendship. That's the way that I think about it. It's like, because, you, well, it's a lot like a sonnet. I mean, maybe, I'd be curious to know what you think of this. Do you think that part of the reason that people have been so fascinated with highly structured poetry is because of the way that it connects to, the way that it sort of mirrors this process of figuring out how to, how to make it work with, with these, this, the most rigid structures that we've been given, like family? Because there's some, you know, you know, do you see what I'm saying? Like, we we're fascinated by the. Fa- I, uh, I'm fascinated by the fact that I don't like, really think that. Okay. Uh, well, but I do think that they are they are re- both related to the the human ability to flourish within certain constraints. Yes. Okay. Uh, sure. I'll buy. But that. I don't think I'll it's about that. mirroring. No, they're both. Well, they're both. Yes. In one in in one case, i.e. Negotiating your life in a family, that's sort of like, I have to do this. And mm-hmm. and then with a sonnet, it's there's like a delight in it. It's sort of like the same process, but instead of being like, you know, it's it's really important that I get the sonnet written, it's it's more of this <laughs> delight in, wow, I can't believe they managed, you know, Shakespeare managed to say so many different things in so many different ways with the exact same metrical structure. Well, I think it was Keats who um his writing warm up was to just write a sonnet. Oh so some goodness. people do have to. Oh my goodness! Just get the sonnet written. But oh my goodness! That's... Yeah, but but that but too that that again that that that's a fascinating. I got to think about that. It's like how am I going to write? And I mean, when I, I'll be I'll be perfectly frank. I don't know how Keats typically wrote. Was it in uh, Was it in open? Uh, he wrote. No, no, no. Okay, he's a romantic. Okay. Uh, wait, or n- unless you mean blank verse. Blank verse. He, yeah. Uh, he like wrote Milton. some blank verse. He also wrote sonnets and he wrote odes. And... Okay. But like his way of getting in it was not um, like stream of consciousness or just writing, you know, or writing a whole bunch of bl- like free verse or blank verse. Or well, I don't like know that. how was... he actually developed the sonnet. I think that was just the first thing he did. But he wrote a sonnet. That, I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's really, at any rate, so there's this, but there is, I mean, that's sort of like a whole, well, okay, maybe here, 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 this would be something to think about. Is all human activity actually of that kind of negotiating within a, of negotiating an appropriate outcome within a recognized framework? Do you think that's the right way? Well, yeah, because we live in the world. Okay. I'm trying, I'm trying to look at this in an appropriate way where it's like, I'm giving it enough distinction where it's still meaningful. I don't want to blow this up where it's like, well, it's everything because it's not everything. I don't think. Well, there are areas of life where we have more constraints than others. Do you think that the difference becomes when we see the constraints as more important than the, say, the degrees of freedom? Do you think, I mean, because like when I sit down at a page, like if I had like a blank piece of paper and a pen and I'm going to like doodle, you know, I don't, the, my, my thought does not go to the constraints of this task. It, it's much more the, the space of possibility. Whereas like I'm th- thinking about a sonnet, I, I would immediately be faced with the constraints of of that. Does that does that distinction make does that difference make sense to you? I'm not sure what line you're trying to draw. I, I'm trying to draw well, okay, the line that I'm trying to draw is that there are some activities where I feel very aware of the constraints. So for instance, writing a sonnet or being married. 
right? It's like being married. It's like, this is my wife. Mm -hmm. I'm married to her. Like that constraint is always there. You know, it's never, I'll get a different wife. Mm -hmm. Whereas there's plenty of other things where like, I'm going to go on a walk. I don't think, wow, you mean I have to go at, you know, somewhere between, you know, two and four miles per hour. And I have to do it by setting one foot in front of the other. And like, I can't walk, you know, I can't step in the water. You know, I'm. Well, I I think it's just a spectrum. Right. There are other things like uh, going to college. You have all kinds of choices, whether you go to college or not, uh, what you're going to major in there, what specific courses you're going to take. But as you narrow those things down, you you have certain constraints that are necessarily there. You know, if you decide to go to college, then you still have the choice of what college you're going to go to. Yeah. But there's all sorts of, you know, all sorts of possibilities that you have eliminated just by deciding that you're going to go to college. You're going to go and do that thing, yeah. Down to once you've, you know, started attending particular classes, the professor has set the course requirements. And in order to do well in that class, you're going to have to write a certain number of papers and and take a certain number of tests, et cetera, et cetera. Do you, do you think that, do you think that, okay, so I I mean, I I think it shouldn't be difficult for anyone to see that, um, that is distasteful to the society writ large right now. The idea of, well, let's say unnecessary constraint, which should be Unnecessary constraint, particularly non-voluntary unnecessary constraint, should be distasteful. But that that the <clears throat> that the realm of unnecessary has been like extended to almost everything. That's what I hear. That, yes. Do you think that because when you started when we went from thinking about negotiating family relationships, which there is certainly like plenty of pain to be found there, um, especially when you're not behaving yourself well um there could be other people too um there's a, there's certainly some pain to be found there but when i think about these you, you brought up the university going to college and i think about the anxiety that so many freshmen face of like what am i going to major in mm-hmm. do you think that there is a do you think there's a, there a a causal relationship there between this push towards um eliminating to moving as far in the unconstrained direction as possible and a fundamental anxiety by unconstrained choice in people's lives. Cause I, I yeah, just, because the yeah. more choices you had to make, then the more choice anxiety you're going to have yeah, just by it's, definition. It's just, it's just, it's fascinating. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's, you know, you've got to be living in the right pl- in the sort of the Goldilocks zone. Mm-hmm. And I've never, it's good for me to remember that. And, and so then, you know, and then I think, well, how do you determine where that Goldilocks zone is? And it's like, well, what, you know, <laughs> to go back sort of like, what have we been taught to, to, to know that that's the right space? It's like, well, you know, maybe your work for a while is something that, you know, is to some degree mutable, right? What about your relationships? Well, your friends, that's, you know, you should be choosing your friends. Like that's good. It's good to choose your friends. You can't really choose your family to some degree, you could do a little bit, but like, um, you know, and there are other factors too, though, when you think about choice anxiety for, there's some other term for it, like decision fatigue and that kind of thing, you know, yeah, there's also yeah, yeah, yeah. people have studied this. I don't, well, I don't I know what they said. I think decision but, fatigue is like a, is like a, a short term thing. That, That's yeah. where you wear someone down and then ask him, Hey, do you want to spend a hundred dollars on this protection <laughs> plan for your $80 phone? And you're like, yeah, I guess I'll say yes. <laughs> That, you know, that's not just because we have all these extra decisions to make, uh, although that, I think, certainly is part of it, but there are other things like not having a clear picture of what your actual factors are in your decision. So you ask freshmen to decide what they're going to study, and they don't know why they would choose any particular course of study, that's going to make it really hard for them to yeah. decide. Yeah. Well, yeah, so, the, and then you get into the whole... You know, what's the goal of their education? What are they going to do afterwards? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's, yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, How does what they're studying relate to that? And, you have no, and, and, and then you have the problem of you have no idea what that's going to be like. Like, you can't be inside having been done with med school and being a doctor. Yes. Until you've done that. And then there you are. 
And so there's a lot, a lot of this sort of, of, as long as it's within the realm of proper action, just act. Yes. Um, which is, you know, should take a lot of weight off of our shoulders. And that, and again, that's a great point because that's what I'm trying to get at again, which is to say that, let's say the, and we can, we could argue about what this means, but I think you'll, you, you've got a pretty similar idea. The common realm of human activity to, to be there, like means you're on the right path in some sense. Are you doing the things that people do? The kind of things that people do? Are you doing it well? Great. You don't, you probably shouldn't be worried if you made the wrong decision. As long as you're like engaged in those things. Does that, I mean, yeah, well, Are you busying yourself with being a human, essentially? <laughs> that gets all the way back most fundamentally to what is your conception of human flourishing and what a human ought to do. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if your idea of human flourishing is that you're going to end up in this perfect career, then it is so vital and hard to make the decisions along the way because you don't know how you're going to get there. But if your picture of human flourishing is to be in good relationships with the people around you and in right relationship with God, Mm -hmm. then that doesn't really have anything to do with what major you chose. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's quite, um, let's see, agnostic to your situation Mm -hmm. is a, it is right. It's a, it's a pattern that can be instantiated in, in countless ways. I mean, look at the world. Great. Okay. What kind of, you know, what kind of degree of economic prosperity is necessary for that? It's like, well, a lot. People manage with a lot of different things. It's like some are more helpful than others, but you know, where, where, what's, where do you need to be living? Do you need to be living in a city or out in the country in, you know, and on and on and on and on. And yeah, this is, this is part of the process that I've been going through for the last like three and a half, four years of, you know, I got inculcated, I don't know where, I mean, specifically where, I'll put it that way. <laughs> Sorry, I just watched a movie where there's a, there's a, there's just like incredibly like selfish and manipulative villain. It, it's the Puss in Boots movie, which I actually enjoyed where he's, the villain's experiencing his downfall. He goes, what did I do to deserve this? I mean, specifically. <laughs> uh, but uh, this, I, I was, you know, I realized that I've been inculcated with this, with it having things backward in the sense of viewing those, the, the, the sort of common things of life, of human life. And I mean, common in the sense that they're available, they're, they're what the people should commonly be doing as being sort of subsidiary and justified by these larger, more like rarefied aspects of society, like say scientific learning or the artistic endeavor and realizing that, well, first of all, that tremendously devalues the individual human soul, which I think is fundamentally antithetical to Christianity. But then it, I mean, it's, it's just like misery making, which is kind of to your point, because then you, you know, especially when you're engaged in the process of really trying to be engaged with your family and friends, those things become at best, a stepping stone to the real business of life mm-hmm. in the world, and at worst, something that's getting in the way of it. And uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of, can be a lot of, say, freedom from and 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 motivation to doing those things rightly, those common things rightly, when you view it not again not as something that's going to happen whether I show up or not. That's kind of the what I've been trying to get at. Those things, it's not, we can't just be like, yeah, people are going to turn out fine, whether I show up or not. It's like, no, all of those things are dependent on people waking up every day and doing the right things and loving each other because they love God most, most fundamentally because they love, they're loving God rightly, you know, and, and my friend Brandon says, he's like, if you want to be a good farmer, the most important thing that you can do is go to mass, (laughs) which is great. He's like, if you're, if you're. Worship to God is rightly ordered. Like these other, the common, the, the other things are going to be ordered as well. And, and, and I think that you could take that a step further, right? It's like, are you concerned most fundamentally with you know, 
the union of the souls that are your soul and the souls around you with God? Or are you concerned with primarily for their own sake, the things that are supposed to aid in that? That's what I'm trying to say. And I think I'm finally getting into my head. Those things are there to aid people in their pursuit of rightly loving God. It's not like we love God so that we're good people so that we can have keep society together. Like that's the backwards way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, that, I don't know what you think. This has been really helpful for me. I think it's been, it's, it's really strengthened some of the things that I've been trying to work on, work on there. And, uh, there's a lot more in the realm of talking about givenness in general. I think I'm trying to come to a much deeper appreciation for constraint and limitedness and the limitedness of our being. And I know that's something we've touched on before, but, um, that, you know, I, I don't know. You, I, it seems like there at different times in history, there's sort of, there are certain aspects of truth that most fundamentally need to be emphasized as say the antidote to the thing that's poisoning us in that moment. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's a, the movie that won Oscar, the Oscar best motion, best picture this year, which I haven't watched. It's called everything everywhere all at once. And it's essentially about, from what I've read about it, it's like the out, the outgrowth of you know, people of our generation and the anxiety, this sort of like weird malaise and anxiety of growing up with the internet and having everything available to you all the time. And so it's a, like this like multiverse jumping story, but it's trying to put, put into words what happens when there is no constraint and everything's floating around everywhere all the time and you can have everything all at once. <laughs> it, it oddly makes me think of um, the Richard Wilbur poem, Love Calls Us to the Things of This World. Which I would, which, I will tell you, uh, I read this morning as preparation for this and okay. didn't tell you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but there it's, it's almost the inverse and it's such a, a, a charming in a lot of ways. Um, desire to escape from things but it's not by going to where everything is available but he says you know his plea is let there be nothing on earth but laundry and yeah and it's sort of that it's something of that same impulse i think in a pre-computer world yes <laughs> of of escape that's the wrong way to go I, I will say, in, in, and, the, in and, the, and he says, yes. "Love calls us to the things of this world, not because we love the things of this world, but because it's only in this world it, that we can love." Yeah, I would, I would say to maybe wrest this out of Wilbur's hands. I don't know if this is an intention, but I would also sort of to add to that. I think that our best, you know, the best shot at finding joy and peace in this world, as far as that goes is in that sort of same plea of let there be nothing but laundry is to not is to find that appropriate level of gaze and maybe you know cultivate hobbit virtue to put it in someone else's terms and i think about the things that 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 thorn oakenshield sells bilbo at the end of the hobbit right yeah but i don't i don't want to rest it out of wilbur's hands because he said <laughs> he says let there be nothing on earth but laundry when he is having this early morning vision of laundry as escape, basically. Mm, and what yes, he calls yes. us back to is laundry for a purpose. Mm, like, mm, yes. let there be, you know, clear dances done in the sight of heaven. And so yes. laundry that you do to clothe people. Mm, that's lovely. And, and speaking of clothing, I think that's a good place to close. Oh, please. <laughs>